Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So far this year, there have been 465 cases of measles in 19 states. The CDC says this is the second greatest number of cases since the disease was eradicated back in 2000 in the United States. How did we get here? Today, where we live, we'll talk about why measles, a highly contagious virus, is spreading in the U.S. and talk about the reasons behind why some Americans are choosing not to vaccinate their kids. Should doctors and public health officials change how they communicate with parents about routine vaccinations? And what does this rise of measles mean for people who can't get immunized because of health issues? We'll talk with the epidemiologist about the impact on what's known as herd immunity. You can join us, too. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome our guests uh, to the show. My first guest is Donald McNeil, Jr., a science reporter for The New York Times. He covers global health and infectious diseases. Donald, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Also joining us for the hour is Dr. Lisa Samen. Uh, she is a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, a subspecialist in pediatric infectious diseases, and also professor of pediatrics at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Samen, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much, Lucy. I wanted to start with Donald. Uh, here in Connecticut, especially, uh, many people are following uh, this measles outbreak in, uh, in certain uh, neighborhoods uh, in New York City, also north of the city. Uh, can you tell us what's happening there, and how long have these out- has how long has this outbreak been going on? Uh, it started in October. Um, it's mostly in Orthodox Jewish communities now, but there's no reason it'll stay in them. Um, it, it started uh, almost simultaneously in Brooklyn, in, in Hasidic communities, and in Rockland County, where there's a big Hasidic population, uh, in uh, families who came back from Israel, when Israel's having a sizable outbreak, not a huge one, but one of, of uh, seven, eight, 9,000 cases. And so... Uh, Families who hadn't vaccinated their kids against the virus picked it up and brought it here, and it started spreading. And it's it's still on the increase. So, you know, we're we're on track to break the record for uh, for measles in this country post uh, post 2000 when it was uh, supposedly eradicated. Uh, we've heard from uh, Mayor De Blasio uh, declaring a public health emergency for uh, certain neighborhoods uh, where these Orthodox uh, Jewish families uh, are living. Uh, when we talk about the number of cases, uh, what do we know as of today? How many have have been uh, reported. I, I'm not sure the exact number today. I think there there were another 80 reported just recently. But we're we're in the 400 or so. Uh, we're, 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 sorry, we're in the 300 or so range in in New York. Um, it's in the hundreds. It's it's, it's basically what's what's worth knowing. Um, and uh, and it you know it's it's likely to increase. And what's happened in response has been extremely unusual. Uh, Rockland County declared that. Um, Nobody who hadn't been immunized could essentially could couldn't leave their house, couldn't go out, not just not not go to school, but can't go to playgrounds, can't go to movie theaters, can't go to grocery stores. That's obviously going to be tough to enforce, but they're going to enforce it by finding out later after somebody has a measles outbreak in their family that they came out at a time they weren't supposed to come out to and they can potentially be punished. And de Blasio did something even more extraordinary, which is he actually called for forced vaccination. Um, now, this is not 
grabbing people off the street and sticking needles into them, but this is families who don't vaccinate uh, can be fined, can be fined up to $1,000. Um, and the way they'll find them out is they're they're doing contact tracing. Now they're going to families that have had uh, measles outbreaks and looking to see who's been vaccinated and also who they've been in contact with. That's tough in a measles outbreak because, you know, you do contact tracing for everything from Ebola to syphilis for measles. Um, you know, with syphilis, contact tracing is looking for people that somebody's had sex with. But for measles, you can pass it by walking through a supermarket. Um, you can pass it by, you know, walking through an airport. So it's very hard to trace all the contacts. But they're trying. You mentioned Rockland County and an order to keep unvaccinated uh, children out of public spaces. Uh, we believe a, a judge has uh, blocked that order, that part of the order. Yeah, that's right. A, a judge has blocked it. I, you know, inevitably, and, and also a lawsuit's been filed in New York City. I mean, anytime a government gives an order, um, somebody files suit and, and tries to get an order to stop it. Uh, that's, President Trump is having a few frustrating moments with this uh, tendency of Americans to go to court right now. But, um, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, Dr. Samen is with us. Uh, tell us what exactly measles is and, and how contagious is it? Mm-hmm. So measles is a virus and it's spread through the respiratory route. So as Donald was describing, when there's somebody that has measles, one of the prominent symptoms is coughing and sneezing, and that releases little droplets of infection. And when a susceptible person, somebody that hasn't been vaccinated or is too young to get vaccinated, comes in contact with those droplets, either in their mucous membranes of their mouth or their nose or actually breathes in the particles, they can become infected. Measles is one of the most infectious viruses, so it only takes a handful of particles to infect a person. So as contagious as a common cold, Dr. Seaman? Yes, even potentially more infectious. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing, Lucy, pardon me for interrupting you, that I think is really important and again echoes something that Donald said, the measles virus, those particles that get released are incredibly light and they can remain in the air for upwards of two hours. So the idea would be that somebody infectious was in the area, left that area, but if somebody who was non-immune came into that area within two hours, they could still get infected. Um, that's uh, pretty scary but to think about that it's uh, that contagious as well as uh, persisting in the air a, long, a couple hours after someone has left uh, that is uh, contagious. I wanted to go back to reporter Donald McNeil Jr., a science reporter for the New York Times. Uh, you've covered global health and infectious diseases for many years. We talked about that year 2000 when measles was eradicated, eliminated from the U.S. Uh, what were some of the factors that led to that, Donald? Vaccination. That—that that is the factor that led to it. I, um, I mean, in those days, more people had memories of kids um, who had measles. They, a lot of them had measles as kids. I presumably had measles as a kid because I'm born before 1957. Um, you know, and it was—it was not an inconsequential disease. Yes, 19 out of 20 kids uh, came came through it just fine with some spots, and they were miserable for a few days. One one out of 20 kids went to the hospital. Um, one out of a thousand kids died. Um, and uh, people have just forgotten in this country how, how serious some of these diseases are. But, you know, I travel all over the world covering diseases. I've met, you know, Americans have no idea how lucky they are that they have access to these vaccines. I've met lots and lots of polio victims. And uh, 
it's no fun to have polio. It's awful, and you wouldn't wish it on your child. And I've also met parents who are crying out, angry at the polio vaccinators because they're saying, you're bringing us polio vaccine, and that stopped. Bring us measles vaccine. That's what our kids are dying of. So people in other countries are begging for this vaccine, and they also know it's relatively harmless, almost entirely harmless. And and because they see measles deaths, they, they're afraid of the disease. But we've lost that in this country. Mm. Uh, obviously, a vaccination, but uh, billions of dollars, a campaign by the UN to look at uh, ending measles worldwide. Uh, talk about uh, just the, the combination of factors that led to these widespread vaccination campaigns that uh, we have vaccinations today, but now we're seeing measles cases going up. Well, the UN didn't need to come to the United States to tell us to vaccinate. You know, the vaccine was invented here, and and the medical system spread it out, you know, through family doctors, uh, you know, pediatricians everywhere. But the UN did uh, in in consultation with the Gates Foundation and Ted Turner's foundation and and uh, the CDC and American Red Cross, is put billions of dollars into spreading the vaccine around the world, starting in about two thousand. Measles is one of the leading causes of death for children under five in the world. It used to be that 10 million kids died every year before the age of five. Now it's down below five million. And a big part of that is because because of measles. And so it steadily went down from about the year 2000 to about the year 2016. It went actually went down, measles deaths went down by 80%. And the billions went for buying vaccine, for training vaccinators, for, for buying refrigerators and things in order to keep the cold chain going. Um, and then in the year uh, 2016, suddenly you got a, a jump up in uh, in measles cases. And it, it's for a lot of reasons. It's not just because of the vaccine skeptics at all. I mean, the number one reason is because of poverty. Poor countries have a very hard time vaccinating all their children. What you do is you do giant measles drives and you try to vaccinate every kid you find. You don't do what we do in America, which is sort of routine vaccination. Kids go to the go to the doctor every every month or two months for the first couple of years of their life and they get their their shots. In other countries, you know, it's it's tough to keep up these constant measles drives when you have new kids being born all the time. And, you, you know, if you let it slow down for a few years, you get thousands of kids, millions of kids in some countries are born, and those kids become a new pool of susceptibles. And once somebody brings in the virus, it's, it's, it's like throwing a match into, a, into a, a pile of matches. You know, they all catch. Donald McNeil Jr. is a reporter for the New York Times, uh, joining us from a studio there. Also with us, Dr. Lisa Seyman, who's a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian and professor of pediatrics at Columbia University. As we talk about uh, why uh, some Americans are reluctant uh, to immunize their children, we want to hear from you as well. The number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, when we look at other places in the world, uh, Donald, where uh, there have been measles outbreaks, obviously you mentioned poverty being a factor, but uh, in places where there's conflict, like in the Ukraine, how has that impacted public health? The public health system falls apart. I mean, there are measles outbreaks going on right now in the Ukraine, where that, where you know, there's a Russian-supported revolution in the east. There's a giant measles outbreak going on in Yemen, where there's a civil war being fought. There's a big outbreak going on in Madagascar, which is just an extremely poor country at, at a huge island off the coast of Africa, and they hadn't had measles there for since 2003. So when it came back, you had a big pool of susceptibles. Um, there was a big outbreak in Somalia, which is war-torn, um, and that's because of conflict. On the other hand, there was also an outbreak in the Somali community in Minneapolis, and that was because 
a number of years ago, it became clear that there were very high rates of autism among the Somalis in, in, in uh, Minneapolis. There is no word in Somali for autism. They were just stumped as to why this was happening. And the anti-vaccine wackos came in there and told them all it was measles vaccine and you have to stop vaccinating your kids. And so, and there was a sort of battle within the Somali community and, and uh, some said this is wrong and pay no attention to it. And others said, others got afraid. They stopped vaccinating their kids. And 2017, there was a big outbreak of measles in the Somalis there. It's, you know, there are many reasons why you get outbreaks, but all you really have to do is create a pool of susceptible people and wait for the virus to arrive and it will spread. It doesn't care about race, religion, ethnic group or anything else, but it's more likely to kill you if you're poor and you're undernourished and you can't get good medical care. The death rates in countries like Madagascar are closer to one out of one out of 10 or one out of 20 cases, whereas in the United States or England or France or other places that are having outbreaks, it's more like one in a thousand. Um, Donald, we talked earlier about uh, this public health declaration in certain neighborhoods in New York City, uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, putting out a mandatory vaccination, uh, and if people don't get their kids vaccinated, they could get a fine. How legal is that? It's legal. I, I mean, you'd be astonished at how tough the public health laws in this country really are, because most of them were written in the 1800s when we had regular outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera and smallpox. And health inspectors can go to your house and put a policeman outside the door and slap a quarantine notice on your house and say, you know, this house has smallpox. Nobody comes in. Nobody goes out. They can take you forcibly into a hospital and, uh, you know, give you antibiotics. We actually did this in the 1990s during an outbreak of multidrug resistant tuberculosis. Um, former health commissioner of New York back in the 1800s during a cholera outbreak was asked by a congressional committee, what are the limits of your power? And his answer was, I can seize City Hall and turn it into a hospital if I feel like it, um, if I think it's necessary. The law allows me to do that. So um, there's a 1905 Supreme Court decision by uh, in the case of uh, Jacobson versus, versus Massachusetts, where a pastor in, in um, Massachusetts did not want to have smallpox vaccine. Uh, Massachusetts had a compulsory law. Now, he wasn't forcibly vaccinated. Um, but he was fined $5 for refusing, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, he was properly fined the $5, and that was fine, and he could even have been jailed, but it didn't say he could be forcibly vaccinated. But that's partially because Massachusetts law didn't allow it. Actually, forcible vaccination has been used in, uh, in Philadelphia in 1991 during a measles outbreak there. Uh, Donald, at this point, we don't know how aggressive New York City will be, considering uh, this uh, uh, public health emergency declaration was just uh, put into place on Tuesday, and uh, you know, just to see what the efforts will be from the city to try to enforce it. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you're not going to be able to march down the the streets and and grab people and say, "Show me your vaccine certificate." Um, I mean, one, it's ridiculous and impossible, and two, you'd fall right into the the trap that the anti-vaccine people are uh, are laying with trying to get people to wear, uh, you know, yellow yellow star of David's with the words "anti-vax" on them in mock Hebrew uh, letters. Something that that you know the Anti-Defamation League finds incredibly offensive. What, what they're trying to do now is do contact tracing in families that have had outbreaks and and find out if they ignore the order. And if they ignored the order, then they're liable for, for the fine. Um, the, the, the city is hoping not to have to punish anybody. They're hoping to, you know, use this as a, as a way of convincing people, hey, we're serious. Um, let's, uh, you, know, you know, get vaccinated. Um, saying please hasn't worked. Offering education hasn't worked. So now they're, they're beginning to use the stick. Um, the stick could get bigger, um, but they're hoping not to have to use it. Uh, they're kind of ramping up. Donald McNeil Jr. again is science reporter for the New York Times. He covers global health and infectious diseases. Joining us today from a studio there. Donald, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue our conversations about the measles outbreak uh, being seen uh, in communities in the United States, also uh, worldwide. What's your response to the outbreak close to home in New York and New York State? Did you have questions about childhood immunizations? How did your doctor respond? Later, we'll be talking about how medical professionals should talk about routine immunizations when misinformation is so readily available online. Our guest, Dr. Lisa Samen, uh, will join, will be with us uh, for the hour, and you can join us too. Here's the number, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. New York City, as we've heard, one of the places that's seen a rise in measles cases. CNN reported that the city has seen nearly 260 measles cases as of last Friday. Here's New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio on Tuesday declaring a public health emergency in a heavily Orthodox Jewish section of Brooklyn amid a growing outbreak there. To give you a sense of what a troubling development this is, it's a huge spike. We saw only two cases in New York City in 2017. So we have a very serious situation on our hands. Now, are you worried about this disease making a comeback? Should doctors change their strategies when talking about immunizations? And should local governments go from encouraging to mandating routine vaccinations? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, my guest is joining us from NPR's New York studio, Dr. Lisa Samen. She's a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, also professor of pediatrics at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Samen, what was your reaction to Mayor de Blasio's announcement just a few days ago? Well, I was amazed. I've been doing work like uh, in hospital epidemiology for over two decades. And as was alluded to by the mayor, we've never seen an outbreak this large. What I really want the listeners to understand is how serious measles can be. And measles can cause pneumonia particularly in in young children. Measles can cause an infection of the brain called encephalitis, which can occur in adults or children. And the other issue that is very important in the perspective of public health people and people like me that work in hospitals is that, unfortunately, we have many very vulnerable people who can actually not get vaccinated who we put at tremendous risk during an outbreak. So for example, little infants cannot get vaccinated. They're too young. Pregnant women cannot get vaccinated because we don't use live viral vaccines. And people that are immunocompromised, for example, somebody getting chemotherapy for cancer or somebody who has received an organ transplant are very, very susceptible to getting severe measles. And so the other part of the vaccination strategy is to protect the most vulnerable among us. People may not know that if a pregnant woman gets measles, she herself is at risk of getting pneumonia and a brain infection and even dying. She's also at risk of a miscarriage or having a premature baby. And measles can get transmitted to the unborn child, and the baby can be born prematurely. 
Uh, Dr. Salmon, could we talk about the MMR vaccine? Uh, many uh, people are, are familiar with it, the vaccine created in the 1960s. So tell us exactly uh, what's in it. How does it work? Mm-hmm. So measles, mumps, rubella, MMR, and the listeners may also be familiar with MMRV. The V stands for varicella, which causes chickenpox. And we give the MMR or the MMRV to all children between 12 and 15 months of age. It's very, very safe. And greater than 95% of the time, a child will become immune, meaning that they will be protected. We then give a booster at four to six years of age in order to get that last few percent so that we have almost 100% of the people that we give two doses to are now immune. So what a vaccine does is this. When you give a vaccine, which is a what we call a live attenuated, meaning it's a weakened virus, it doesn't cause measles, very important for the listeners to know, the vaccines do not cause the, the actual virus that you're vaccinating against, you allow the body to make special proteins called antibodies that are directed against that virus. So if in the future a person were to encounter the real measles, they would already have these preformed proteins called antibodies directed against the measles, as well as other white blood cells that would help them fight the measles and they would not get sick. You can join our conversation uh, today on Where We Live. Uh, my guest, Dr. Lisa Seyman, who's a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. We're talking specifically about the outbreak of measles uh, seen uh, close to home in New York State, also as far away as Washington State. Uh, measles outbreaks are also uh, becoming more common uh, worldwide uh, in certain countries that had also seen it eradicated here in the U.S. Uh, no, no measles uh, back in 2000. Uh, now uh, the cases are alarming public health officials like Dr. Lisa Sayman. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Barbara is calling from Avon. Barbara, go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. I have two, quest- two questions. Is there a heavy metal in the form of mer- aluminum that is in the vaccine to prolong the shelf life? And Barbara, what, what's your other question? I'll have uh, Dr. Sayman answer both of them. And the other question is... Um, the regulating agency that that regular you know has a contract or maybe a commitment to, to um, check on the safety of the vaccine is it are these tests being done routinely as they are supposed to do? All right, Barbara, thank you for your questions. Uh, first up, uh, Dr. Sayman, uh, she was asking about a, a metal found in these vaccines to extend shelf life. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. And that the concern of the heavy metals was actually linked years ago to the concern about autism, which has been debunked. There is no association with the measles vaccine and autism. That has been very, very well studied by many groups. And one of the concerns was the heavy metal, so they were taken out. So there is no heavy metals in the vaccines. And then there are very strict regulatory guidelines during manufacturing to ensure that there's safe preparation and to ensure that the measles viruses within the vaccine are that attenuated, weakened form that I described before. And in addition, 
very strict regulations for the shipping and storing of the vaccine to ensure that it retains its potency so when it's actually administered to a patient, it works. So this is very, very closely regulated. Oh, we're going to take some more calls in just a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask you, uh, new parents especially worry about adverse reactions, especially as their uh, infants are getting uh, immunizations every couple of months, every few months. Uh, what kinds of reactions can happen from getting uh, a routine immunization? Um, and when people raise these concerns, uh, you know, how do doctors respond and try to allay those concerns? Lucy, it's very important that pediatricians and, and other people giving vaccines do anticipatory guidance for their patients, explaining what the possible side effects might be. So especially for new parents, they understand what they can expect. It's also important for the listeners to understand that the adverse effects are quite rare. Generally speaking, the most common adverse effect is pain at the site of the injection sometimes some swelling and some redness. Some babies may get a fever from a vaccine, and some babies, um, very few, about um, one in 100 to one in 200, may actually get a sm slight rash from the measles vaccine that can occur within a week after vaccination. It's important to recognize that rash goes away quickly and is not infectious. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Richard's calling from Wallingford. Richard, go ahead. Hi. I heard uh, just yesterday that people vaccinated prior to a certain date, it could have been as late as 1990, that the vaccine may not be very effective because the protocol at that point had been to give one shot and not a, perhaps a booster shot. If that's the case... I would have been vaccinated back in the 1950s. Should I be concerned that the vaccine is still effective if I was given it, or do people need follow-up shots? Dr. Salmon. So in the 60s, there was a vaccine that was a different one than we use today that um, is thought not to be as effective, and particularly among healthcare providers who are at increased risk of coming in contact with people with measles, there are recommendations to get a special blood test to look for those antibodies that I was talking about before. This is called a measles IgG to ensure that people are immune. Um, but the caller is raising an important issue. When we have a huge amount of herd immunity where everybody is vaccinated, we don't run the risk of introducing measles into a population. But when we have people that may have been vaccinated a long time ago, only had received one vaccine, or maybe got this old vaccine that is not as effective, suddenly we get a lot more people at risk for getting measles. Mm. So this is why it's crucial to have very, very high levels of effective vaccination in a population. When you say high levels, uh, more than 90 percent? Yes. 
Uh, Dr. Lisa Sayman is hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, also professor of pediatrics. As we talk about immunizations and why there is still a concern uh, about vaccinations, you can join us, 860-275-7266. There's also uh, different viewpoints about uh, immunizations. Uh, Tim's calling from Portland. Uh, Tim, go ahead. Hi. Thanks for having me on your show. Sure. Go ahead with your question or comment. So my comment was just that I think there's a mischaracterization of people that, that you, you know, they're referring to them as anti-vaxxers and, or, you know, you're one of your last guests there called them anti-vaxxer wackos. Now, I'd like to present that, you know, in, in our case, we would be considered ex-vaxxers because when we got the vaccine, our daughter became very sick and, and uh, you know, as now has the autoimmune disease that is definitely linked to the chickenpox vaccine. So I don't I don't think that that would be a fair characterization mm-hmm. just to say that it's fear driven and and um, not based on any experience. Uh, Tim, thank you uh, for your comment. Um, uh, Dr. Lisa Saman, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but again, um, as uh, parents and, and fam- individuals have questions, concerns about uh, vaccines and whether or not, uh, you know, because especially in, in Connecticut, you know, there, there are families who can take a religious exemption. Um, you know, there's a, so I'm just curious how you respond to someone like Tim who uh, believes there is a correlation between uh, their child getting a, the vaccination and then causing an adverse effect. It's very understandable that a family would feel the way Tim's family feels. And what we have to recognize is that we are we give vaccines to hopefully every child. But sometimes during early childhood, children get other illnesses. But to link that to the vaccine is fraught because it's not what we call causal. It doesn't mean that the vaccine caused that problem. It was just that the vaccine was given before the problem occurred. And lots of times people are looking for an explanation, an explanation for something as devastating as autism might be for a family. So it's crucial that we provide extremely carefully done studies to uncover any possible adverse effects, and then crucial that we develop really clear ways of communicating the lack of those adverse effects in order to get people safely vaccinated. You can join our conversation today here on Where We Live, the number 860-275-7266. Erica's calling from West Hartford. Erica, go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I think I'm a family medicine physician at UConn Health, and I think this is a great topic to have on your show. So thank you very much for doing it. And and sort of, this is a, a great segue from what Tim just brought up. So I'm a family medicine doc. I support vaccination. Um, I promote vaccination with all my patients. And I do have a good subset of patients that don't vaccinate or have a lot of questions about vaccinating. And my approach is that I sit and listen to their worry and their doubt. And I try to clarify anything that they have. And I find that in the end, I can get them to vaccinate their children, even if it's like a broken up vaccine schedule. And so I would love to hear the you know your 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 guests input about this. Is this a good thing that I should be doing? Should I be doing something different and how can we you know support families who have a lot of questions about vaccinating uh, uh, thank- in order to get their kids 
vaccinated. Thank you, Erica, for your question. Dr. Saman. Well, that's wonderful news that the the real emphasis about what I took away from Erica's comment was the trust factor and the fact that she is willing to take the time to unravel the concerns that somebody might have. What we're learning, and you alluded to this, Lucy, in your introductory remarks, is that there's a lot of false information available to people, for example, because we have so much access to the internet, for example. And it can be incredibly difficult for the layperson to sort out what is truth and what is fiction and what is um, inappropriate assumption of causation like I was talking about before. Being able to listen to a family and listen to their fears can be incredibly helpful. I have heard other strategies similar to what Erica has been talking about that have been very effective. I would um, be remiss if I didn't say that it would require meticulous record keeping on the part of that physician and clearly um, adds to the um, time inherent in a visit. And um, sometimes not everybody has that incredible desire to do what Erica is describing that that she does, but my hat is off to her. Uh, Dr. Saman, when I uh, had my first child, the pediatric practice that we used, uh, they were very clear to families that if uh, they had uh, uh, any reason to um, to not want to have routine uh, vaccinations, that they should find another practice. And what do you think of that approach? We um, have heard that approach also. And it is um, it's very interesting and I think um, not without some controversy. The rationale that those pediatricians are taking is that if you imagine the waiting room that you went into with your baby, there were probably half a dozen little infants that were too young to get vaccinated as well as potentially immunocompromised people in that waiting area. And if somebody developed measles and came in to the physician to get a diagnosis, they have now infected your baby. And the pediatricians that are saying that to those patients that will not get vaccinated are doing that to protect their other patients. So I think there is some justification for that. Personally, I would wish that it would be possible to talk them into getting vaccinated instead. And I know from other doctors that taking the time that Erica described can really work. But then there are people that will not change their minds about vaccinating their children. You're listening to Where We Live with our guest, Dr. Lisa Salmon, joining us from NPR's New York studios, a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. We're going to fit a couple more calls in before we head to break and talk more about um, the information that's out there about uh, vaccines. Uh, First, uh, Steve and Meriden. Go ahead. Uh, This is Steve. Yes, go ahead. Um, I had measles in 1963 along with my brother and most of my classmates. And um, also at the same time, we heard of something called German measles. If I had measles, does that mean I'm immune now as an adult? I'm 62 years old. Secondly, 
I'll, I'll take the answer off offline. Uh, I also had chicken pox at the same time. Does chicken pox associate with measles, and does that lead to shingles? And can I get shots for that to immune myself if there is problems, or am I because I've had everything? I already am immune. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Go ahead, Doctor Salmon. <laughs> thank you, Lucy. So. Remember we talked earlier about MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, and the V for varicella. So measles and German measles are two different viruses. Um, There's a very high likelihood that somebody that sounds as old as Steve also had the German measles. I want to add that um, we have a very safe and effective vaccine for chickenpox, which is given in childhood often at the same time as the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, MMRV. But unfortunately, people who have either had chickenpox, like Steve, or people who have gotten the varicella vaccine may still get shingles, or the word that we use is zoster. And there is a very excellent vaccine to prevent zoster, um, for use in older adults. But um, this is also something that we um, recognize the power of vaccines because zoster can be an incredibly debilitating infection with um, a lot of pain and discomfort and um, that can persist for weeks and weeks. So it's wonderful to add that to our armamentarium. Mm. Uh, Sherry's calling from Danbury. Uh, Sherry, uh, we have under a minute. Please go ahead. Uh, First of all, I'd like to say I'm not being facetious. This is a public health issue, and I really believe that the people who will not vaccinate should pay for the babies and the chronically ill in my family who cannot be vaccinated. They are exposed to the decision they made, and the consequences should be rested on the people who had this cause, and they should pay. Mm. I think it might affect their decision-making. Uh, thank you, Sherry, uh, for your comment. Uh, again, uh, some people looking for a, a firmer uh, consequence uh, when uh, people who rely on herd immunity are impacted by the decisions of whether this is a personal freedom question, Dr. Saman, or the fact that it's a public health issue uh, that should concern all of us. Yeah, I mean, I totally share the previous caller's concerns. Um, working in the kind of hospital that I work in where there are so many little babies and so many immunocompromised patients that have getting chemotherapy or have had transplants, those individuals cannot get vaccinated, and they depend on the rest of us to be vaccinated in order to protect them. And if they get measles, it can be so severe that they could even die. So I really do echo that this is a public health issue that we all are responsible for. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Seyman, hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, also subspecialist in pediatric infectious diseases and a professor of pediatrics at Columbia University. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, misinformation about vaccines is only a click away. What can public health officials do better uh, in terms of communicating with families and to combat uh, these low vaccination rates? We're going to learn more after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What can public health officials learn from the strategies used by the anti-vaccine movement to counter the misinformation so readily available on the internet and social media? My next guest has studied how inf- misinformation is spread online. Uh, joining us via Zoom is Rupali uh, Lume, Associate Director for Behavioral Research at the Institute for Vaccine Safety at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Rupali, uh, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So we were talking about um, uh, people who have fears about vaccine safety. Um, This is nothing new. Uh, Now we're seeing outbreaks of diseases like measles arising. Um, You know, with uh, the outbreaks that have happened in the 90s and previous and today, you know, what has changed in terms of where people are getting their information? So I think the major issue here is the internet is great in a lot of different ways, but unfortunately what has happened particularly around misinformation related to vaccines is that these these user-generated platforms, so social media platforms, if you will, have allowed individuals to get on social media, post inaccurate information, and spread that information. So when you think about a news story, a news story is generally checked by some sort of a source to make sure that the facts that are included in that news story are correct. However, that is not the case within social media. And part of the issue with regards to why we're seeing a spread of misinformation related to vaccines specifically is because parents are unfortunately seeing that they're having less and less trust in their providers. So they're turning to these social networks for news. Mm. Uh, We heard from a caller earlier um, who obviously, uh, for good reason, uh, doesn't like to be labeled, uh, uh, whether they're called wacko or even anti-vaxxer. And how does that uh, kind of uh, complicate a conversation about uh, between doctors and uh, families? I mean, I think he made an excellent point, and I think we have to be very careful with the nomenclature that we use. I think that most parents are going to have concerns, right? As a mother myself that has two small children, I had questions about vaccines. And I think what that caller said, as well as Dr. Saman was saying earlier, I think it's really important to not label people and polarize the debate even further. There has to be some willingness to think about how do we build empathy from a provider perspective with these parents that might have concerns to hear them out, just as that other caller said, that family uh, family physician, I believe, and to think about a way that the provider can enhance trust so that parents are more comfortable asking these questions, they feel like their concerns are being heard, and that providers are understanding where they're coming from. Uh, often, uh, scientists will rely on data points uh, to get a message across, uh, doctors as well. And I'm curious when we think about the uh, stories that are being uh, shared over social media, uh, there's more of a, a personal connection, even if those stories are inaccurate. Um, what can doctors and public health officials learn from those tactics, Rupali? I think that we can do a lot better, right? I mean, I think it's exactly what you were saying. I was saying to someone else just recently that think about the types of information related to vaccines that are posted on social media. Parents usually aren't going to go on social media and say, hey, guess what? I had a great vaccine experience today. They're typically going to go on and post something that happened that was perhaps negative. So I think thinking about these storytelling approaches, focusing on emotions, thinking about ways that we can build empathy, that is something that we should do from a public health messaging perspective. 
Uh, Dr. Lisa Samens also with us, a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, Dr. Samen, uh, more states are allowing for non-medical exemptions. Uh, we heard from a listener uh, who believes people are hiding behind the religious exemption, um, and that's why they're unable or unwilling to vaccinate their children. I mean, how should states be approaching this from your perspective? I know that there is um, talk in New York about um, eliminating the religious exemption right now. And I think it's really important to understand what that means, because what I am seeing in in our communities, because we we do serve a lot of the Orthodox Jewish communities, is that there's a lot of diversity even within that community that may not be really appreciable to everyone. So it's very important for us to recognize that there are plenty of people in the Orthodox Jewish community who are vaccinating their children. Uh, my guest today, Dr. Lisa Seyman, hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and Rupali Lumay, associate director for behavioral research at the Institute for Vaccine Safety at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Rupali, uh, when we talk about uh, falsified information, uh, many people still remember that discredited uh, Lancet paper uh, linking, uh, I believe, the measles vaccine uh, with a, a link to autism. And I'm just curious, again, uh, from your research, Research uh, ways that uh, uh, this can continue to be discredited, but it keeps getting called up again and again, uh, and people still have that link in their minds. What can be changed other than people continuing to say that uh, there is no link? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a challenging issue that we are dealing with, and, and it's exactly as you're saying, that was discredited. He was stripped of his medical license. But unfortunately, we hear that paper being brought up again and again and again. And I think, again, this ability to get on the internet, seek information that sort of aligns with your attitudes and beliefs allows misinformation to proliferate. I think, you know, we can, I think we can tell people the scientific facts, right? We can talk about evidence-based, and this is what we are finding with regards to the studies that have extensively studied the link, um, and actually no link, right, between the MMR vaccine as well as autism. But I think, you know, I think, again, it comes down to making sure that providers and healthcare um, individuals in general are thinking about how do we build empathy with these parents so that they're allaying their concerns and their fears and not dismissing their fears and trying to think about how do we build trust in them so that, again, parents would be much more likely to listen to a pediatrician or some other healthcare provider rather than turning to the internet to get information that will most likely not be as accurate as you're receiving from a healthcare provider. Uh, Dr. Samen, again, uh, with the outbreak in New York City, I think, thankfully, no deaths have been reported. But is that um, something that will be, uh, I guess, uh, a possibility considering that this the measles outbreak, uh, if it continues? And again, this idea that people don't remember uh, the consequences of measles in this country, it's easier to, to forego a, a vaccination uh, because of that. This is what keeps me up at night, to be honest that we will have a death. Um, I uh, I was part of the 19, the outbreaks in the 90s, and we, we did have a death at that time, and I will never forget that child. The other um, long-term consequence of measles that your listeners may not know about is a long-term um, infection of the brain. So earlier we talked about infection of the brain occurring at the time that measles is initially presents. But measles has the capacity of actually hiding in the brain, and so it's a relatively rare complication. 
Um, but it occurs more frequently in very young children. So if a child under the age of one um, is to get measles, they have a risk in the future, upwards of seven to 15 years later, of presenting with a chronic infection of the brain that is fatal. And and that is the other thing that, that I truly, truly worry about because the current outbreak has affected so many very young children. Mm. You mentioned uh, living through the outbreaks in the 90s. Uh, Again, we are in Connecticut, so uh, the outbreaks are close uh, uh, to where uh, we live. Uh, What should people be thinking about um, continuing this discussion uh, in their communities, Dr. Saman? I think this is what we're here today for. We have to vaccinate people. We have to get to those very, very high levels of herd immunity. And um, I think that one thing that I think a lot about is the impact of friends and families on decision making. I think that we know that oftentimes friends and families may have a very profound impact on somebody's decision to vaccinate or not. So I urge your listeners, if they have somebody that they know that's reluctant, to actually speak to them about their own experience and their own understanding of the importance of vaccination. Uh, we talked just briefly, Dr. Saman, about uh, this mandatory vaccination uh, in particular areas of New York City. Are you concerned about people going underground and not wanting to be found out by the, the New York City government? I don't think I know. Um, I actually did speak to the health department yesterday about this issue. Um, they There are more and more people actually getting vaccinated And I think that as people are actually seeing real measles, it's making a very, very big impact. Um, We'll we'll only know in the next few months. Well, Dr. Lisa Seyman joining us today from NPR's New York studios. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Lucy. Dr. Seyman is a hospital epidemiologist rather at New York Presbyterian Hospital and professor of pediatrics at Columbia University. Also joining us today, Rupali Lumay, associate director for behavioral research at the Institute for Vaccine Safety at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Rupali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. She was joining us today via Zoom. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>